Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players, and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I remember one of the first times I met and played with Richard Lafferty. It would have been at a springtime carnival called Caribou Carnival here in Yellowknife. In late March, the town would pitch tents on the lake ice where people could play games or drink beer. They had log sawing and flower bag hauling competitions. Hockey and broomball tournaments where the staff from the local saloons would put together a team. All good community fun. The main attraction was the sled dog races. A 50-mile course was plowed on the frozen waters of Great Slave Lake, and over three days the teams would run the 50 miles, and whoever had the best time at the end was the winner. On Sunday evening, a gala event was put on by the Métis Association, where the trophies were given to the winning dog mushers, followed by a talent show, which could go on and on and on. I was with a band that was hired to play for the dance, but also obliged to play behind all of the talented folks, trying out for the generous cash prizes for the winners. Richard would walk calmly to the stage, well-dressed with a traditional Métis sash tied just so. He was always prepared to play, fiddle in tune, great tone. He would turn and give the band just enough direction, and with a few quick chops from his bow, the band picked up the tune and off we would go. I could tell that Richard was a practiced and disciplined musician, just from the confidence he brought to the stage. That and the fact that he didn't add or drop any beats or bars to the song in the same way that other players would. Now, just a little bit about that. See, as a young player, I was a bit baffled by this, but would take it on as a challenge to try and anticipate when these players would drop or add beats or bars. Now, some were quite random, and others always did this in exactly the same place each time. We took to calling this crooked fiddle playing. And over the years, while I'm came up with some theories about why this is so. Now, recognizing that the Scottish and French fiddlers floating up and down the Mackenzie didn't even have sheet music or recordings of these songs, they would pass them on to the local players by memory or by ear. 
One person played the song, the other learned it on the spot, and relied on their memory to retain it. Indigenous people up here passed on important information in the oral tradition for millennia, and they learned this music in much the same way. If you've ever played the game as a child, sitting in a circle and whispering a single word to each other, you know how messed up it can be at the end. So not surprising that a few beats and bars might be added or dropped in the learning and passing on of these songs. The other part of this is that their traditional prayer songs were not phrased in 4-4 time, and some of their phrasing can be really, really tricky. So for them to learn and play a song written in 4-4 would have been incredibly challenging. Now my turn came later on when I was trying to sing backup vocals in the Klicho language for David Gon and Norse Slavey language for Lila Gilde. I would have to memorize and sing these foreign phrases while playing a conventional 4-4 bass part for live shows. Richard Lafferty was born and raised in the community of Fort Providence, or Zatikwe, on the banks of the Deitcho or Mackenzie River. When he was young, there was no electricity, and there was no road into Fort Providence, so the only musical visitors would be the travelers and supply boats that ran up and down the river. They might have stayed overnight and had a social, which involved the playing of old-time fiddle music, passing on of songs, and lots of dancing. Richard went to the mission school there and learned to play the fiddle and the guitar with the players in his family and his community. When he was older, he left to go to residential schools in Anubik and Yellowknife. At Acacia Hall in Yellowknife, Richard played with the Arctic Ramblers, a band made up of young men from around the territory which at that time still included the territory we now call Nunavut. After graduating, he moved back to Fort Providence with a government job for the Transportation Department and later retired to Hill River. Richard has been recorded by the Gabriel Dumont Institute for their Drops of Brandy anthology and has recorded his own CD, Fiddler's Dream, with another Métis master fiddler, Calvin Volrath. He has been recognized by the Gabriel Dumont Institute for his knowledge, musicianship, and his efforts to preserve Métis-style fiddling. Richard was given a sash by the Métis Nation of the Northwest Territories for his contribution to Métis music and dance. Over the years, Richard and I have shared stages at festivals, Arctic Winter Games cultural events, CBC True North concerts, Canada Winter Games, Olympic cultural stages, talent shows, and many other cultural and music events in the North and across Canada. Here's my interview with Richard from the fall of 2008 at the Ptarmigan Inn in Hay River, Northwest Territories. I was born in, in, in Fort Providence, 1944. That's where the family's been there for years and years. And actually, I, I grew up in a very musical family, because all the way up to my granddad, uncles, and they, they all played the, the midi style of fiddling, and guitars or whatever music there was around. So from the time I was in diapers, there was music around my ears. <laughs> Put it that way, you know. And uh, eventually I, I started following them around. As I got older, I followed, and that's how I, I, I started with my music, you know. But back in those days, everything was all acoustic. We didn't, we didn't have an electric light in the house in 1960. We didn't know what that was, eh? But it was interesting and uh, nice to see how, how people function and enjoy themselves. They made their own music. There was times when they, they used to go to the neighbor's house and they'd take the stove right out of the front room floor and put a pillow in the pipe, put it outside and they'd have a square dance. That's a real good old traditional stuff. 
anyway, yeah, yeah they all, that, uh, you know, they created their own family. The highway came in there, they were working on it in 58. Yeah. And Providence was just a small, isolated community. And uh, mostly access was uh, through waterways and air in those days. And the music, I believe, came down through waterways from different settlers and people that come up north. You know, the Scotch, the French, whoever, they brought that music up here and the locals pick up whatever they could pick up in their ears and eventually had music. So that's how you got those songs. Obviously, your uncles and your grandparents yeah. and who already played, they already knew a bunch of tunes, but there would be different nationalities coming up through the river systems, like in those days? Yes. And so, yeah. the, and there was always people coming in and, and the local, you know, when, uh, let's say, a boat would stop in a community, well, someone off the boat, they would go ashore to spend the night and they had a social evening, such as old-time dances and whatever oh. took place. So you went to school in Fort Providence as well, to the mission school there? I went to the school, yeah, it's a local mission school there, but I, I, was, I wasn't in the residential. I was living at home, you see. Oh, okay. I used to walk to school there. Okay. The only time I, I left is uh, in 1959, they, when they first opened the new residential school, we went down there for a year. Just for a year? 1959, yeah, because the schools were all full up here, there was no room, so... They, they, they put us in school in Inuvik for a year. And we landed in Fort Simpson. We picked up quite a few. In fact, some of the musicians that played in our band with us, one was Nick Sivestin and all them guys. They picked four or five of us from Fort Providence. We landed in Simpson, got a few there, and Norman Wells, and then we ended up in Inuvik in September. And uh, there was no phone to phone home either, so you had to write a letter home, you know, in those days from the school. But uh, I stayed there one winter, and then uh, the following year, uh, 60, 5960, in 1960, I transferred to Yellowknife, Sir John the Hall. And uh, that's, uh, that was my first year there, and then I, I, I left there in 63. I was done with my schooling as a heavy equipment operator. I went into vocational training. Yeah, anyway, yes, and then when we got to uh, at Keitro Hall in 1960, well, the boys, uh, or we all had, somebody had a guitar here and there and whatever up in the dorm, so. Eventually, the supervisor, who was John Ratcliffe in those days, maybe you remember him. Yeah, yeah he purchased uh, different instruments. He got mandolin, guitars, and fiddle and stuff, and just put it out in the common room for the boys to try it out, so. We had fun with there, trying to learn, you know, exchanging amongst ourselves. Alfred Lockhart, all them guys were in school. And Alfred Lockhart? Alfred Lockhart from Snowdrift was there also. Dolphus Hardy Steve from Fort Simpson. Harvey McClure from here. All them guys were around. Yeah. And eventually we started playing a few tunes amongst ourselves, exchanging there in the common room. And, uh, and then... Uh, the supervisor actually formed a, we formed a band called the Arctic Ramblers. You remember that, eh, Pat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had fun with that. We played for our local dancers in the, in the residence at Keicho Hall, Sir John Franklin School. And yeah, eventually we ended up playing downtown in the, in the Elks. Every once in a while they get us down there at the Arctic Ramblers, so we'd play for a dance there. And 
we played there till about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and then I was it after that. We had the Chinaman fed us a feed and we went home. <laughs> Gold range, eh? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess the funding that was uh, brought in from us playing down at the Elks Hall just went towards purchasing more equipment for the, the students also. Beautiful. And, and that's how they accumulated, you yeah. see. So you already had a fiddle in your hand. When, when do you remember, uh, say, playing your first gig, uh, playing for your first dance? Actually, there was a lot of old-time fiddling done in Fort Province, yes. especially in our family. Guitars, fiddles, and the odd handsaw you saw the scrub boards and stuff. They had all that good stuff going, you know, amongst themselves. They, you know, that's in the house, they, here and there. And I started off trying the fiddle, which I am still trying to learn, but anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, and then I, I ended up with guitar for a while. I used to hang around them guitar players because all the fiddle players, my uncles, they interchanged their tunes amongst themselves. You see, they'd play a tune, say, for example, like the Red River Jig. They'd play it their way, and the next guy would say, no, no, it's this way. You see, so they exchange, eh? But after when the party gets going good and the dance and stuff, it's interesting because when there was a guitar around, I always hung on to that. And I picked up, I picked up on the guitar. You had a fiddle in your hand, what, six years old, eight years old? Well, um, uh, maybe a little later than that because okay. they, they protected their instruments too. They didn't just leave them laying there because they were scarce to find. Eh? That was going to be sort of my next question, I guess. What, yeah. how, how did instruments come into the community? Yeah. And, and and, and strings and bows. Yeah, and the only uh, place where you could buy a fiddle and bow would be through uh, the HBC. Hudson Bay Company brought a few around, I believe, in those days. And uh, Simpson Sears and Roebuck, the old catalogs there. They used to order black diamond strings and whatever I remember. In fact, I got a set at home from way back. They're still in the pack. I think the E string was 10 cents. The A string was 15. The D was 25, and the G was about 50 cents. I go downtown to buy myself a set of strings today for my violin. It's 69 to $85 for four. They're the old black diamond strings, yeah. and I thought that's something that should be kept. How about your bows and the hair on your bows? Did you get them rehaired? Did you rehair them yourself? Some, some of them did, yeah. They, 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 they did rehair, you know. They, you know maybe they'd get from the mission or something, they had horses or whatever, but no, I, I, I've never really okay. seen too much of that. Yeah. So how did you get your first instrument then? Uh, passed on from the family? Or? My own instrument, I, I learned right, right off one of my, my uncle's fiddle, and the guitars were in the house, so that's how I learned, but it was practically on my own. And he used to keep his fiddle that way so it wouldn't get broken, but when he'd go across the river to check his fit net, uh, I'd take it out. And, but he knew because it wasn't in tune when he came back. Eh? <laughs> and it was a challenge for me. But anyway, eventually, and then I started playing back and forth with him. Really, to be honest with you, I never owned a fiddle to 1981, but there was always one in the house. My own personal instrument. Till 1981? 1981. But when I went to a Hall in 60, there was a fiddle there. And there was a mandolin there and guitars. From 60 to 63, that's three seasons. We had all those, so I, I, I picked up on a mandolin pretty quick too. 
and the mandolin is tuned the same as the fiddle. That gave me a boost to get going on the fiddle, you see. If you, you can learn by picking faster than you can play the when you're fiddling, your, your arm is doing the talking and your fingers, see. So I'd pick a tune on the mandolin up there in the dorm when we're jamming and try it out in the fiddle, and I picked up quite a few tunes like that. Mandolin's got eight strings, but they're all tuned to say E-A-D-G, eh? Yeah, as the, as the fiddle, I never knew that. So, yeah, that would be a, a good instrument to sort of, like you say, learn the, learn the notes on, and there you got your... Yeah, you and it's got frets, eh? Probably pretty close to the same scale too. Maybe it's, it's a little bit different, but it's, it's yes. not as drastic as a guitar yeah. or anything else. And uh, yeah, there was, there was a few of us that played <coughs> fiddle with the Arctic Grounders. There were three of us all together. Over the years, there's always newcomers. Who was in the Arctic Ramblers? Well, if I remember correctly, there was uh, well myself, of course, and there was a uh, Harvey McClure from here, and Dolphus Hardesty from Fort Simpson in those days. Frank Lafferty from Fort Jazz. Well, there was a lot of boys that interchange every once in a while. Leon Sanderson, which was a Thomas at that time from here. That's how we, we formed our own little band. And every once in a while, when somebody would, wouldn't make it, another guy would step in. And Dolphus would play the fiddle, so I'd pick the mandolin. Oh, we interchange, okay. you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see? And Alfred Lockhart and those guys, they, they were on guitars with us all. We had our little six or seven in our group and we interchanged. And I used to pick polkas and stuff like that on a mandolin, which was good. Or I tried to anyway, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> just back up a little bit more. Quick question about Anuvik. Was there music up in Anuvik when you first went there just for that one year? Well, in, in, in the residence there, there was, there was a few guitars. Some of the boys brought their own, like the Ken Hudson from Norman Wells okay. and Nick Sivistin also. He was from Fort Simpson. And uh, I think he obtained a guitar from Peter Lafferty in those days. And he had that in the residence. And uh, Felix Moses, Happy Moses, they called him from the clavic. He had a fiddle there, too. So we used to have always had something around. There was okay. something around to entertain ourselves with. When you went to Yellowknife, were you glad to be going to Yellowknife to Acacia Hall there? Or, or was it... Yes, I, I look forward to it because okay. what I wanted to do is I wanted to, to go into the vocational training. I wanted to, to end up in, in a little bit of mechanic and then do heavy equipment work. And that's what I accomplished out of there. So I went in with a goal, more or less. How often would you be playing, like when you we were talking about going out and playing in the Elks Club and the Legion and those different places? It, uh, How often would that happen? It wasn't every weekend. It was always arranged through the supervisor, I guess, John Rackley, for whatever is happening. Like at carnival time, we'd play. Yes, of course. And different, two, three or four times, different time of the year. They arranged that for us, and then we'd just go downtown. And then one time in the spring of the year, we made a tour at Easter break, you see. Mm -hmm. School had a break. So he arranged a trip, and we had a, the resident there had a, a travel all like a panel. So we put all our instruments in the trailer and we headed out to Fort Ray. There was no Edzo in those days. We played in Edzo. It was spring of the year. We knew it was going to be soft down there, but still we tried it. He said that maybe at night we'd make it. And we played in Providence and uh, the river, there was too much water on, on the ice. The ice was still there, but it was impassable in places. We had an interesting crossing there because we unloaded all our instruments in the sleigh and we pulled it across the Mackenzie. 
six of us and the supervisors. We pull our instruments across on the ice and the, uh, the DPW or somebody sent a panel to school from there on the south side of the shore and they loaded us all up in there and brought us into Hill River. You guys are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so but anyway, yeah, we did. We crossed this failure and we played in the old school down the old town. It's not standing there anymore. It's called St. Paul. We had an old time country dance going in there Friday and, and uh, Saturday. And Sunday we went back that way and pulled them back across and we made it back so. <laughs> so you'd like, you're pulling the sled across? On the ice, yeah. On the ice yeah, and there's water? Yeah, well, there's a little, little water here and there, whatever, but yeah. we did soak it. It, it, it wasn't total, total water short to short. It was like a spring thaw. <laughs> well, it was an interesting year. That's, that's incredible that you'd go to that length just to go on tour because I, I can't even imagine what the road was like you know, <laughs> back then, much less dragging your equipment across the yeah. Mackenzie River on the ice. Uh, uh, no, the roads were gravel, but uh, they, they were still passable. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Do you remember what year that would have been? It uh, had to be in 62. 62. I'd say 61 yeah. or 62. Because 63, I left in March. I went to work for transportation, and I, I never left there for 43 years. <laughs> okay, okay. And uh, so, so did uh, did John Radcliffe come come with you on that trip? Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah John Radcliffe, the supervisor, because he was always with us. Yeah. 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 Because we were students. Eh? Yeah. Responsible. And yeah. All of yeah. That stuff. But, but yeah he arranged all that. We had places to stay here. Yeah. Good on him for 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 pulling all of that together for you guys. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. I don't know if anybody else can, but I. Can you can see it. You can see it. Okay. <laughs> You graduated, uh, like you say, you were out of there at the end of 63. Yeah. Did you start working for highways? I was a pretty lucky because they were looking for an operator at the time. And I was finishing my my heavy equipment operating course at the end of June. And the principal uh, for vocational training was, I believe, Mr. Black at that time. And Ed Jeske was the instructor. Yeah, so... Uh, he called me one day at the end of March and he said they're looking for an operator if you're interested. He said, there's an opening for you, you can let me go a month earlier. So they did. They released me, yeah. They released me and that's when I started for transportation. Wow. Yeah. And I was lucky that I managed to get that, that position right at, right at home. It turned out okay. Real good. You're living in Fort Providence and you're working for highways during the day. How often, how did you get your music and keep it going that way? You had the Arctic Ramblers when you were in the Cage Hall. And then who were you playing with when you went to Fort Providence after you finished your school? Well, in Fort Providence, uh, there was always uh, locals that played. So, they, so you know, we, just the local boys, we'd get together and form a dance or do some. Yeah, there was always music around different, different place in town. So basically picked up with the community feasts yeah, and yeah. The dances? Yeah, and there, 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 was, there was a lot of musicians here. You made your own music in those days, eh? Yeah. So more more or less the same group of musicians that you had before, or was can you remember some of the names of, of some of the people that you came through in those years, say through the 60s, that you played with? Well, there's a... Uh, Practically the locals, some of them are still there, you know, and I mean, the locals that were there all the way through, 
and maybe the odd new different people come into town to find a different job than there'd be newcomers coming, but the originals were always there right up till the end, you know. Would that be people like Albert Canadian was? was oh, Albert Canadian, yes, Albert Canadian was one. He was in the Arctic Ramblers with us too, eh? the Albert Canadian, Alfred Lockhart, and, and Ratcliffe formed a band after he left the Keitra Hall, and they went playing down south with him for a while. So that would be the Chieftones, is that right? That's it, that's right. Chieftones. I got most of that story from Albert. Yes, yeah, okay. It's quite the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, and uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, like Albert was back in Providence, and there's local, uh, David Bonnerouge, who's in his well into his 80s today, but, and my uncles, and you know, there's all different people, they interchange. You go to, a, to an old time dance or any type of a local dance in town, like I said, where they made their own, they found a place to dance and that's what they did. They didn't have no community halls or anything in those days. And people would interchange right at the dance. One guy would play guitar for a while and another fiddler would take over and so on. That's how it carried on. And it was good, it's a learning process. You're passing your music on, you know, picking up different things. Yeah. Was that the only way that you picked up songs or you were listening to radio, probably records were starting to become more available. Yeah, uh, well, records, records were always around. Okay. And uh, I remember when I was the smallest, <laughs> there was a, a local radio station on the air out of Edmonton. It was a, a French station, CHFO Edmonton, they called it. And there'd be half an hour straight old time fiddle in the French music. And they'd never miss that. They had the old battery on the, on, on the stand there in the house and the, the radio there with the antenna outside. That was a local radio station you catch on there. And they had this French station and they all sit around there, whoever was there three or four, the, to listen to that, uh, their, their fiddling music. That one half hour show. One half hour show. Every Saturday. A, every Saturday. Every Saturday. I was going to ask you whether it was every day or just <laughs> no, once a week. Saturday. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, whoever was there, they listened. You know, I guess they picked up whatever they could out of there. This is where your media music comes in. Because you pick up by ear, it's going to be different. Yeah, there was records around, you know, but don't forget those were the old record players back in those days. I call them all now, but they were the record of the day. And all the old 78s that you crank in there. We had a big old record player in the house the size of this cabinet here. Once in a while they'd pull that next door to listen to music too, but they had their 78s under their arms, you know what I mean? Country music and, and then some, a lot of fiddle records also. So the fiddle music, the traditional sort of Métis songs would be coming to you through the family and through the travelers and everything like that. I keep trying to put myself back into that time, but I mean, I was just born and, and three years old, so I don't have much of a clue. But there would have been the fiddle music that, say, would have been coming out of, say, the popular country music, Don Messer, those different kinds of people. Well, uh, Don, Messer, Don Messer, Ward Allen, Ned Landry, all the old traditional fiddle from down east, well, their music was on record. Okay, so you buy a record and you bring it home, and that's how they picked a lot of it. I had lots of Ward Allen too, Graham Townsend, Lady Years, those top fitters. They had stacks of records. Yeah. And so that would sort of give you more of a broader scope, I guess, of styles of music to play. That's right. And at that time, the popular music of the day, right? Of, of, uh, that, that's when the, that's when the records start coming into the country, and mm -hmm. then it's cassettes. 
But prior uh, to that, it was all acoustic. It was all acoustic. So uh, what was your first run-in with, a, let's say, an electric guitar or a PA system? Actually, it was in the 60s when I went to Akitra Hall. Yeah, yeah, that's where we, we ran into some electrical. Okay, so you would put a microphone on your fiddle or, or on the on the mandolin or? No, I uh, uh, the mandolin, I just played direct to the mic, but the electric guitars, you, they had a system. As far as recording anything that you guys ever did in those early days, was there uh, ever any recording done on old reel-to-reels? Or I remember they used to make the record players where you could actually cut well, the record. There might have been some done at the Keisha Hall or at the school at Sir John Franklin. I don't know where they'd be. Okay. That was on, we would be on the reel-to-reel. So there was some recording that was done? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, CBC might even have some. Wow. John's brother, was, uh, Peter, was a uh, CBC tech. That's right, too. Yeah, I went and chat with them a couple of times at CBC with my mandolin and stuff like that. So they're somewhere, if you dig deep enough. So between John and Peter, the Radcliffe, the two brothers, there there would be somewhere. I would say, I would <laughs> somewhere. say, I would There's say. Some yeah, uh, because even when we played for our dances or say graduation at Sir John, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, somebody must have somebody. Yeah. Anything between 63 and 83, we'll pick it up in 83, but is there anything between, were you in Providence for those, let's say, 63 to 83, that 20 years, were you in Providence all the time and working for highways out of Providence? Uh, 86, I moved to Hebrew. Who made the biggest impression on you, like as far as fiddlers, like like within the territory, over the over the time that we're talking about, uh, when you're growing up and you're in a Cachel Hall and you're working in Providence <coughs> and stuff like that? Because I've heard the names of certain fiddlers that were that were incredible fiddlers. Do you remember seeing any of those guys play? I grew up with one. His name was Danny Boogie, and that was my uncle. He died 80 years of age, and he didn't play in public. Danny Bouvier? Yeah, Fort Providence. He never played in public? No, very, very few. Maybe a few dances downtown, that was it. And yet that man could play fiddle. I refer him as a Graham Townsend number two. You know, all of, all of the, the traditional meaty tunes, old-time tunes, and they were, his timing was unreal. He was a self-taught musician, I guess, learned from different fiddlers all through the years, but he played by himself most of the time, and I was fortunate enough to play guitar for him once in a while, very often. And he was also very fussy about it, so when you make your mistake, he correct you right away, and that was nice. That's what was nice about it. We were learning. Eh? Yeah, for sure. And the only ones that did any recording on that man was way back in the 60s, it was Wally First when he was with CBC in Yellowknife. He had made a tour up here and he recorded that. And he got, and Danny played for CBC at that time at the house because I was playing guitar for him. Uh, okay. So that's another one of the, the treasures that's uh, in he, CBC vaults. Uh, I, I rate him as number one. I, I've heard a lot of fiddlers. I listen right from coast to coast. He was, he was good. That's, this is not bragging. That's right down. He was good. That's what I say. You know, there's a lot of, probably a lot of good musicians like that out in the country. You know, they're not exposed to public. They don't want to be in public, but they enjoy it. You know, you hear him fiddling upstairs by himself over there, mm -hmm. figuring it out. Kept his fiddle by his bed there on the nail hanging there, and that was it. Bow behind. 
I would like to thank Richard for sharing his rich musical life story with musicians of the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life, and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate it on our website, musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series. And to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories Department of Education, Culture and Employment, the Yellowknife Community Foundation, and the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Brayton. Thanks for listening.